This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Today on the pod, the housing naughty list may have been released months ago, but today the provincial government sets targets right down to how many condos, townhomes, and single-family homes need to be approved. Plus, new polling shows the NDP comfortably on top, conservative support growing, and BC United in free fall. Are we witnessing a tectonic shift in BC politics? And having a hard time deciding what to watch on streaming services? Our Jerry Mayor Judson shows why making a choice is getting more difficult. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. About an hour ago, the BC government announced it has ordered 10 municipalities in our province to build more than 60,000 new units of housing over the next five years. And if they don't, they will uh, face consequences. Now, of the 60,000, 28,900, so just under 29,000 or half of those new houses have to be built in Vancouver. Uh, Communities like uh, Abbotsford, uh, that's 7,200 new homes, about 13% increase uh, from 2021. Um, Delta, 3,600 new homes. That's about a 9.4% increase, just under 10%. Uh, since the 2021 census. Joining me now to talk a little bit about these new housing targets is Ravi Kailan, BC's Minister of Housing. Minister, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Jeff. Thanks a lot for having me. So, first and foremost, how did you come about these numbers with the 60,000 home target? Well, uh, we had a, a team of economists come together and uh, essentially model out uh, what we believe the targets for British Columbia's population will be in, in five years and how far behind we are when it comes to housing and model out from each community according to their growth how much housing they need, but not just how many units. Uh, the, the units are the targets, but we've also provided every single community guidelines on what type of housing mix we believe they need. How many one bedrooms, how many two bedrooms, how many three bedrooms, etc. Because it's not just uh, wanting to see more studio spaces or one bedrooms created. We want to make sure that there's a variety of housing available in all communities throughout the province. So is there a formula for those sub-numbers, as you say, the one bedroom, the two bedroom, three bedroom? Um, and when you say three bedroom, that could be a single family home or a townhouse. Uh, uh, is there room for a townhouse? I'm just curious, sorry, for a single family home. In regards to breaking down these various types of, ho- the types of housing, how was that done? Yeah, we, we have a varied uh, list of the type of uh, guidelines that each, each community should reach, uh, how many three bedrooms, et cetera, or higher that they should have, how many uh, shelter spaces they need. So we, we've provided a pretty comprehensive list, and this is a baseline for communities because some communities said to us, well, you know, you said we need this many three bedrooms, but we want more three bedrooms in our community. And I say, good job, go for it, because those are harder to build than the one-bedroom units. Uh, these targets that we've laid out is a 38% increase on what they have done historically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, it's significant for some communities. Uh, it's, it's very significant for some. For some communities, it's a slightly higher uh, number than perhaps what their housing needs reports have said. Uh, but every community has seen an increase from uh, the, the numbers that we've presented to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was looking at some numbers, and some have said, based on what Vancouver has approved and where it's going, 
it shouldn't have a problem actually hitting that uh, 29,000 number. Uh, uh, other communities shouldn't have that difficulty. I think North Van's there. Port Moody uh, should be able to hit that. There are some laggards, of course, uh, Kamloops, um, uh, Delta potentially as well. Um, what if these communities aren't able to hit that target? What happens? Well, uh, the milestones are set within the Housing Supply Act. The first milestone is approximately six months, where we do check-ins to ensure that uh, communities are actually taking this seriously, showing some progress on the file. And it's not that we're going to just wait till five years to check in with them to say, hey, where are you at? Our plan is to work with these communities all the way through. Where are their targets? How are they building? They are required to build a certain amount of affordable housing units within their community. How are they reaching that? What kind of provincial investments can help them? What kind of federal investments can help them? So it's an ongoing conversation with these communities, not a here's your target and we'll see you in five years. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I don't, Surrey's not on this list, which is the second largest city in this province. Uh, Burnaby. Uh, would be third largest, uh, Richmond would be the fourth largest. Uh, I'm going to assume you feel that they're building enough housing, they're meeting their targets, that they're aggressive enough. Will there be another list within the next little while beyond these 10? Well, uh, the frank uh, truth is all communities need to do more. Uh, And uh, we're going to be announcing the next 10 communities uh, later this fall, uh, likely in December. Uh, And then my plan is to announce the 10 communities after that uh, sometime mid next year. Uh, and so all communities will have a, you know, a role to play in helping address the challenges that we're facing with. Uh, and, uh, and our message to communities is even if your name isn't on the first 10, get to work because it's likely your community will come up eventually. Now, all these communities will have NIMBYs and people just oppose this type of housing and this aggressive nature of building this housing. Uh, do you think in some ways getting put on a naughty list, uh, they'll never say this publicly, but in some ways uh, elected officials at the municipal level now have something to point to and say, hey, we're on this list, we're forced to do this, sorry, I understand your concern, but we're not going to listen to you XYZ Association or Local Housing or Concerned Citizens Association, we're going to build this because we want to get off this list. Well, if communities need me uh, as a boogeyman to get affordable housing built in communities, then uh, they can fill their boots. Uh, I would say, though, there's uh, a million reasons to say no to housing. People find a lot of excuses of why they don't want housing in their community. What we need communities to do is to work together and get to how we can get to yes, how we can get to communities saying, okay, we see that this housing is important and we want to have housing for young families. Uh, We want to see more young people in our community, and this is how we get there. And, again, those are conversations that are going to require collaboration, and and I'm committed to working with all these communities and the next batch and the next batch to reach their targets. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, you had a press conference at 2 o'clock to make this announcement today, so just over an hour ago. Uh, Ten minutes before your uh, press conference, there was a tweet from Sean Fraser, the federal housing minister, and it said, quote, In light of a proposed development cost charge increase by Metro Vancouver, I've postponed today's announcement of how Housing Accelerator fund deals with two cities who are members of the Metro Vancouver Board. We're studying the impacts of this proposal, and I hope to have more to say soon. And my understanding of of the development cost charges is basically Metro Vancouver wanting to take some of the burden of taxation off homeowners and move it more towards developers uh, uh, and, and sort of transfer some of those 
cost to them. But some have said what that does is basically increase the cost and building of new housing. Um, is there anything much you can do about this in regards to this? Ta- ta- I understand why Metro Vancouver may want to do this. At the same time, it is perhaps impacting the federal dollars, in this case with the Housing Accelerator Fund. Is there much you can do as a, a provincial housing minister to fix this issue? Well, I've already uh, messaged uh, the federal minister and uh, my colleagues at the uh, municipal level to say, let's let's get to the table and kind of sort this out. You know, it's a challenging situation because I, I get it. You know, we need infrastructure uh, built. Uh, it's important. Uh, we all agree. And, uh, and so I think that's where Metro Vancouver was going. But at the same time, I also understand from the federal position because, you know, when we bring in legislation to say we want this type of housing to be built in communities, and if we have local governments putting barriers in the way to stopping it, uh, we find that very frustrating. And if um, the federal government reduces GST from purpose-built rentals and that gets captured in other fees that local governments want to put in, that negates the, 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 the potential for that to increase our housing supply. So I, I appreciate the frustration. And, uh, and the truth is we need to have some tough conversations about it. I'm prepared to be at the table to support both sides to come to a resolution. Uh, and the fall legislative session is coming and uh, everybody expects the, the big issue uh, to be housing, 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 a few other issues, but housing is going to play a big role. What can we expect from you and your ministry when it comes to le- uh, legislation? Well, we've already uh, signaled clearly that there's a, a lot of housing-related legislation coming. Uh, we, we've already signaled we're moving to allow up to four units on uh, single-family lots to be built. Uh, we're uh, going to be changing rules from transit-oriented uh, development to allow for more housing options closer to transit. We're going to reform how financing works so that any proponent, whether it's not-for-profit or private sector par- partner, when they go to local government, they know their costs up front and it's not something that gets negotiated later and that's just a tip of the iceberg of some of the pieces that are coming in the next uh, two months and i'm going to in the secondary suite issue as well right uh, in regards to uh, legalizing it for the entire province that's correct we're going to move to uh, ensure that no local government can ban uh, uh, rental suites in in their in their homes uh, and of course that's tied with a fund which we're going to make available early in the new year for mm-hmm. those that need help uh, financing that renovation work. Minister, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jazz. Stay safe. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Let's take a look at a new poll that was released today from Research Co. Uh, The online survey, which is representative of a provincial uh, sample, uh, basically shows that if an election were held today, 48% of decided voters would cast a ballot for the BC NDP. That's up two points from May. Uh, That's 48%. BC United would receive 20%, uh, and they're down 13 points and the Conservative Party of BC would get, would uh, attract 19% of the vote, up 15 points, and the BC Green Party is fourth with 
percent down four points. Uh, what are we witnessing here? Is it a tectonic shift in BC politics? Is it a case of where the free enterprise coalition of federal liberals and federal conservatives, which generally uh, have a you know have built a coalition over the last uh, fifty or sixty years, is, is it fractured? What does this all mean? Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about today's poll is Mario Canseco, president of uh, the Research Co polling company. Mario, welcome. Uh, hi, Jess. Great to be here with you. So walk me through, uh, first and foremost, what is this telling you? What are the themes coming out of this poll? <laughs> There's a couple of things that really jumped out of the page when we were looking at the findings. The first one is that uh, we have a significantly high level of undecided voters. Usually at this point, when you're midway to the legislature, uh, you have about 10 or 11 percent of people who say they're undecided. When we asked in February and in May, that's what we got, 10 percent of people who said, I don't know who to vote for. Mm-hmm. But in September, it's up to 18 percent. And this really speaks to the complexities of the situation that we're having politically right now here in D.C. Uh, the NDP voter who is sort of figuring out if they want to stay with the party now that David Eby is the new head of government people who are wondering what BC United is, if they voted for the BC Liberals, and those who are sort of flirting with the federal conservatives looking at their uh, at the BC conservatives as an option they can support. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of undecideds, but when you look at the decided voters, um, it's essentially a fight for second place between BC United, which used to be dominating and was usually in second place for the last few years, mm-hmm. and the BC Conservatives that are certainly climbing up the charts. Now, but all, all you know, these parties, the main two parties, um, generally are coalitions. Right now, the BC NDP coalition is doing very well, thank you very much. Uh, but the other coalition of federal liberals and conservatives, referred to as BC Liberals or BC United, have certainly fractured. Um, in, in this case, uh, is this a case of where... Is there any chance right now for BC United to attract their traditional support among free enterprise voters, or is this going to remain fractured in your mind? Well, what is interesting is to see BC United holding on to the base of support in Southern British Columbia. You know, they're still in second place. They're at 29%. This is a place where they elected people many times, but it's dropping dramatically, particularly in the Fraser Valley, where they're in second place, in Metro Vancouver, where they're essentially tied with the BC Conservatives, and in the island where they are also below the Greens and the NDP. So I think part of the complexity here is going to be what type of solution are you planning? Because when you look at the numbers, if we had only one party, mm-hmm. it would be a difference of, of only nine points. And and you know, part of the problem is where are all of these voters going to go? Are you going to have a compelling argument as the BC Conservatives to say we are going to be the ones to deliver you where you want to go? Or can BC United do something different and, and try to rebrand, certainly in a better way than what we've seen over the past few months? Because you know we've seen the numbers not just dropping for them as far as the voting, but also for Kevin Falcon as their leader. Um, they have about a year if an election is held next fall in 2024. Is that enough runway to educate the public about BC United? Or do you think this is a question of this is this is baked in and it's going to be very difficult for Mr. Falcon and BC United uh, to make any significant increase uh, in the polls? I think there's definitely an opportunity for growth. And, and more than anything, it's going to be something that happens at the local level. Part of the problem with the BC Conservatives in the past, and we've seen this repeatedly in several elections, uh, people flirt with the idea of voting for the BC Conservatives, and then they show up to their polling station on voting day, Mm -hmm. and there's no candidate they can support. So 
they have to make themselves viable. Uh, uh, you cannot run the, the, the entire province if you only run 17 candidates in an election. So there's going to be a lot of discussion about who's going to be running for the BC Conservatives and whether BC United can maintain that organizational structure that has allowed them to run candidates everywhere for every election in this century. So if you can continue to command that type of gravitas Mm -hmm. and to get people who are interested in uh, center-right politics to run as a BC United candidate then you definitely have a chance. I mean, generally, the political math in this province has been you get a bunch of federal liberals and federal conservatives together, uh, and they may not agree on everything. They may not even like each other. But generally, when you keep that coalition together, two-thirds of the time, they are generally the folks who uh, form government in this province. Every 20, 25 years, that coalition (laughs) fractures, uh, whether it be the Socrates to BC Liberals, I would argue BC Liberals now to BC United, whatever it may be, we're in that moment once again. Uh, now you add in, uh, layer in a demographic shift of millennials increasingly being a bigger portion of the voting public, even though you know boom, boomers do vote, and I firmly see that. Uh, but they're a growing portion of that vote. Add in a layer of, uh, you know, a significant amount of immigration in our in our province in our country. Um, one would argue the free enterprise coalition whether it's fractured or not, is really going through an identity crisis, really trying to figure out what are they and who are they in regards to the 2024 voter. I don't think it's been able, they've been able to sort of coalesce who are they, what are they, and what is, and how do you stay together, particularly with the rural-urban divide, demographics, immigration. I mean, I think they're struggling with identity more than anything. It's a complicated matter because for a long time, um, the BC Liberals coasted on the notion that we're not the BC NDP of the 1990s. Yeah. And now you have voters who weren't even alive in the 1990s. So they're not going to respond well to something like that. And ultimately, I think we need to look into the circumstances that led to the majority that the NDP enjoys at this moment. You know, it's the middle of the pandemic. Justin Trudeau's immensely popular across the entire country. John Horgan connects very well. People are happy with Bonnie Henry. That gets you 48% of the vote. It's a complicated aspect when you look into what needs to happen from now on. And we see the conservatives federally connecting very well on the housing file. If BC United or the BC conservatives talk like that and try to establish that emotional connection with younger voters, then we could have a more interesting election in our hands. But it's ultimately about the policies in place, because this idea of criticizing what the government does out of a knee-jerk reaction is not leading them to get more than 20% of the vote. Do you think uh, if one more person defects or more polls like this come out that Mr. Falcon can make it, uh, can limp towards the election? I'm just curious because, you know, these keep, yeah. these numbers keep coming out. And as the caucus is going to be looking at it, staff will be looking at it, donors and supporters are going to be looking at this. Can Mr. Falcon make it to election day? You know, the number that is crucial to me is to look at the level of support for an for a merger between BC United and the Conservatives. It's 32% across the entire province. You might look at it and go, well, it's just a third. It's not meaningful. But it includes 54% of BC Liberal voters in 2020, the weakest BC Liberal party that we've had in this century under Andrew Wilkinson. They know, these voters who stuck with the BC Liberal brand in the worst election they've had, Mm -hmm. they know that it's practically impossible to do this if the BC Conservatives do well. So if that is your core voter and your core voter is telling you, extend a hand to these people and let's see if we can make it work, then I think that is the answer. Wow. Mario, fascinating poll. Thanks for your time today. My pleasure, Jess. Anytime. 
we were talking about this during the uh, news break. Jerry Mary Judson joins us. And uh, I asked you if you knew about that song. Did you know the mm-hmm. song, The 57 Channels and Nothing On? I had heard it. I'd heard it as a statement before, yes. but not that it was a Springsteen song. Bruce Springsteen, 1992. 92. Which would be my first full year at NW. Oh. But I'm thinking back to television, then you had the broadcast channels. And then you had a few specialty channels, but the right. majority of the specialty, specialty channels that we have today weren't on TV at that point, mm-hmm. I don't think, in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nobody ever thought about streaming or no, could no envision No, no video that. on demand. The only videos you had on demand <laughs> were VHS tapes. But now, of course, I mean, flash forward to 2023, it's uh, VOD or VOD, I guess is how they say it in the industry, which is what I learned today. Yeah. Um, VOD is, is everywhere. It's, it's, you know, you stream, you, I don't remember the last time that I watched a show that was scheduled at a time. It might have been an awards show. The la- I think I watched the G- Junos the on time. TV, exactly. Yes. But that's it. And uh and it was weird to circumnavigate without cable. But um, I talked to Christina Summers. She is the country manager for Roku Canada, and they do this big survey called VOD Evolution every year. They did it in July. So they, they get a sense of where the industry's at. Exactly. And what our habits are, more importantly. Exactly, and what our habits are. And it even goes into not just our streaming habits, but what TV streamers are buying, what TV streamers have plans to do. Um, so I asked her about how Canadians are sort of interacting with streaming in this new era. TV streaming is continuing to grow. 75% of surveyed Canadian internet users are now TV streamers, so more than three quarters of the population. And one of the things that they're investing heavily from a time perspective is in ad-supported video on demand. And so what this is, is free content in return for light advertising. That's something, too, that I noticed, but yeah, in like the last year or two, is that uh, streaming services offering like a cost-effective tier where then you are um, seeing advertisements. And one of the other terms that our our team is kind of coining and and trying to make it a little easier for people to wrap their heads around this is what we call FlexiVod. So this is defined as people who are looking to consider changing their VOD services in the next 12 months. It used to be very easy where you had subscription services, so you paid X amount for channel one, you paid X amount for channel two, and Mm -hmm. things like that. And a lot of these big players are starting to introduce these ad-supported tiers as well. Each channel partner is providing choice to consumers so that they can reach all TV streamers regardless of the type of model that they're looking for. It's good that you brought up choice because I would also, this is the thing that stuck out to me the most, is the paradox of choice and how that influences our behavior even before we watch a show. Canadians who are streaming their media, they, they're, they're taking a while sometimes on average to find what to watch. Isn't that right? Yes. That's absolutely right. I'd be curious to know, um, do you have an idea of how much time you probably take when you're making your choices? I am for sure above average, I think. I think it takes me a really long time to land on something to watch, but I feel like I'm in good company, right? One of the things that we found with the study is there's differences at different age brackets, and there is certainly a difference as well. If you know what you're watching, it doesn't even really enter the equation. Totally. you've been waiting or a certain movie or show or something, you're going in and you're going into your channel of choice and you're just starting to consume that content. But for those of us who don't have a decision, it takes an average of 13 minutes. So it's like a quarter of an hour. For them to, to just decide what they're going to watch. We found that younger streamers take uh, a little bit more time. They can take upwards of about 18 minutes on average if you're looking at adults 18 to 24. Oh my goodness. And then for the older generations, um, surprisingly, they're more decisive, I guess, than the rest of us. They uh, take an average 
average of nine minutes. So we do oh. see differences between the two age brackets. I know you probably can't say all that much in terms of predicting the future from this research, but I'm interested in the future of cable. Is it going to go anywhere or is it going to stay, do you think? Well, what I, what I can say is what the research tells us and which we have been seeing unfold is linear cable and satellite isn't going away tomorrow, but we are see, seeing a decline. So the research told us that 24% of Canadians plan to cancel or downgrade their cable or satellite package. Um, That's up from the previous years. So what we're seeing is that we're seeing a continued decline. And then the reverse of that is that we're seeing a continued increase in TV streamers and the amount of time that's being spent within TV streaming and the content that's available. So it's the new cable, basically, is what streaming is. Yeah, just exactly. It's just when we want to watch, uh, which I don't think would surprise everybody, but I think you realize how much of our evenings now are focused on streaming rather than traditional broadcast television. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting uh, in, in in your conversation there, 13 minutes on average for, for folks to choose what they want to watch on a streaming service. Yes. I can tell you my family that we drive that average up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just <laughs> we, get, we get all of us together. It is so hard to choose what you want to watch. How long does it take you generally um, at home? I think I might fall more into the 18, 20 minutes camp if we're not actively watching okay. something. Yeah. 28 minutes was like the longest on average time spent when you're undecided. Um, and then, yeah, I... I and not, you're not one of those folks that says, I want to watch a drama. You could be watching a drama or you could say, no, yes. I want to go to animation. Oh, yes. I want to go to a documentary. Garbage uh, reality television garbage. is my is my thing. Hey, That's my favorite to watch on go. streaming. Stephen, uh, or producer Stephen Chang, uh, how long does it take you to decide generally to, what you want to watch on streaming? Um, <clears throat> I'm thinking around maybe like 15 minutes if I'm like on okay. my own. Because I would usually switch between programs. So let's say, for example, I'm watching like a Star Wars show, but maybe I get bored. Then I would switch to stand-up comedy. Then I get bored. Then go to a cartoon and I get bored and so on and so forth. Uh, it really depends on the day. It also depends on my mood. I would say my average would be about 15 minutes. So, but when you're watching like, in, in, let's just say you find something in yeah. the span of half an hour how many different types of genres are you watching based on your short attention span uh, you know, <laughs> i'm curious i want to say about four my average wow. is four my average is four it also depends on um if i can hear the program that i'm that, that i'm watching because yeah. depends how loud i'm chewing right so <laughs> let's not go there ryan what about you i know you're a sports fan as well but how long does it take you to finally uh, prob- decide what to i watch? would say probably more than everyone here it's a good 20 30 sometimes 40 minutes um, like so, for me, I'll check Netflix. I don't see anything. I'll go to Amazon. I don't see anything. I will. I'll, I'll go to Crave. I'll go to Apple. I'll go to YouTube, and I, I do watch a lot of YouTube. And for me, it's a lot of like I'll watch one video. I'll watch three minutes of a fifteen-minute video, then I'll flip to a different one, and it's just a whole bunch of surfing that, back and forth. Uh, yeah, I, I don't. My son does this, and I, you get a nice big screen TV. And he watches YouTube on yeah, TV. Yeah, why are you hating on it? That's what it's I for. I don't get it. No, I don't no. see a problem Man, with that. Yeah, more, more video per screen. I think it's awesome. I think YouTube on the TV rules, actually. I, I just, I don't get that. It's just, it's Old guys yelling. Jazz. Yeah, I'm okay with that. It's just guys yelling on, on the camera, playing video <laughs> games. Or something. And I go, how is this entertaining? Can you please shut that off? Have breakfast. Thank you very much. I don't want to be watching that. Yes, I sound like get off my lawn, Jazz. And I'm okay <laughs> with that because YouTube is, is for your phone, maybe your computer, but leave the big screen. Just TV for... Real cinema, you know, content. <laughs> Maybe Real you should try cinema. sometime, Jazz. Maybe yeah. you should try it. Oh, I can't. So just sit for 30 minutes in front of YouTube and just put on some I, random I streaming tried video. I've tried, and it doesn't work for me, guys. It just doesn't, especially you got these streamers on Twitch or whatever yelling and... I don't know. But, but hey, Jazz, you can stream Question Period live on YouTube. You so. really yeah, could. Hey. Not, but no, on your TV, and there you go. Just watch Question Period with a bag of popcorn. I would not watch Question Period. 
period on that. We just have Richard Zussman coming on. Thank you very much. All right, Jerry, thank you so much. Thank you. Jerry Mary Judson, Ryan Lee Hall, and Stephen Chang. The B.C. government announced that it has ordered 10 municipalities in the province to build more than 60,000 new units of housing over the next five years or face consequences. Uh, Vancouver is expected to build half of those 60,000, but the community of Delta is expected to build 3,600 new homes. That's about a 9% increase uh, from the 2021 census. Joining me now to talk a little bit about this naughty list is Dylan Kruger, who is a Delta City Councillor. Dylan, thank you for joining us. Jazz, thanks for having me. So, uh, is this? Uh, can you do this? The thirty-six hundred homes that the the province expects you to build over the next five years. We can do this, and we have to do this. I think the province has been very clear with municipalities across BC, Delta included, that we all have a responsibility to do more to approve more housing units and approve them uh, faster at a significantly faster rate than we have been doing so. Uh, and this involves uh, both incentivizing new housing and also reducing barriers to, to getting them approved. So we, in, at least in Delta, we, we are here. We uh, accept these targets and we're ready and willing to answer the call. So why are you on this list in the first place? What has been the bottleneck in your mind? Has it just been local associations, local groups, a collective mindset at City Hall? What got you to to the list? Yeah, I think, you know, the province used objective metrics and, and clearly Delta is, is one of the cities that have not been doing enough. I think Delta has been one of the lowest uh, gr- uh, lowest growth rate uh, cities in Metro Vancouver consistently for the past several decades. And, and uh, part of that is, is, is um, external factors, but part of that also is, you know, a, a political culture that uh, that has needed to change. Uh, it is very difficult. We know that at the local government level and, you know, we need some legislative reform to help us with this. When you're sitting in uh, a public hearing situation with uh, with uh, very vocal local residents who are very resistant to change, it is very difficult for uh, elected officials to uh, say yes in those situations. And, and Delta has not done enough uh, to say yes. And in some cases, we put barriers in place to uh, um, to make it harder for those applications to even make it to us for consideration. Where would those 3,600 units go? When you look at Delta, there's North Delta that borders Surrey, but then you've got the uh, community of Ladner, you've got the community of Tawasson. Uh, how do you plan to uh, uh, sort of evenly build that growth, or is it going to be more focused on more dense areas? I think you have some high-rises planned along the Scott Road corridor there, or, but is this going to also mean some traditional areas that perhaps have been pushing back on density, uh, like Tawasson or even Ladner? Are you gonna, is this going to be evenly spread? spread through your community? Well, we, we need to see housing everywhere. We can't, we have to treat our city like one city. Uh, we can't be stacking immense amounts of density in, in certain places while leaving other areas unchanged. We have to realize that we're we're part of Metro Vancouver. Uh, we're, we're just a short distance from downtown Vancouver and, and we're part of the, the urban center of our province. The reason I'm so supportive of meeting these targets is because the province has also been clear that municipalities that don't meet these targets might have those targets enforced upon them. And we can look at Ontario, that's a few years ahead of us. Ontario also imposed mandatory housing targets on cities surrounding the GTA, and cities that did not meet those housing targets uh, had the Minister of Housing come in and sign ministerial orders to, to blanket up zone property. So my message is let's retain the right of municipalities to put the housing where we think it makes sense for us, where the province will do it for us, and we might not like where they're going to put it. Do you see foot dragging occurring, not in Delta per se, but generally among some of your municipal cohorts around this province who will still be fighting um, uh, the province on this one? Yeah, and I want to, yeah, and it's not a Delta issue or this city issue or that city issue. I think it's a local government challenge across the country. 
And like I said, I think the targets are one part of the issue. We do need local government act reforms, and I understand, you know, some are forthcoming. We know the engagement process is broken. Whenever we just had a public hearing yesterday, which was a very uh, challenging hearing for uh, some not very ambitious uh, projects, a couple of six-story buildings, um, but uh, we, we typically only hear from one side of the equation. Who we don't hear from when we do public engagement mm-hmm. uh, is those that are seeking housing, uh, those that are renters or in other precarious types of housing situations, uh, as well as future residents. Now, we have a responsibility to listen to all of our residents. That includes longstanding residents. But we also have a responsibility to plan for the future, the growth and demand that's here today and, and the demand that's projected to come in the future. Yeah. Dylan, thank you so much for your time today. Jazz, thanks for having me. Well, starting in December, single-use items such as plastic shopping bags, disposable food service accessories, oxo-degradable plastics, compostable or biodegradable plastics will no longer be allowed to be sold in BC. Uh, Since the province made that announcement and even launched their Clean BC Action Plan in 2019, um, many municipalities, in fact 20 municipalities, have established bylaws to limit single-use plastics in their communities. Well, you can imagine the tremendous amount of demand uh, that is building and is already built towards single-use paper products. Joining me to talk a little bit about the change that is coming in December uh, is Brandon Lead, CEO of Sophie Products. Brandon, thank you for joining us. Hey, Jess, thanks for having me. So walk me through uh, what has been the last six months or year been like for you in regards to just dealing with businesses who see this coming down uh, and they have to be prepared for it. What's it been like for your company? Yeah, so we're definitely seeing an increased demand across the board throughout the whole country. Um, I think it's kind of escalated over the last six months as people are preparing for this December 20th deadline. Uh, it's kind of woken up people now that it's fall and it's uh, a couple months away. So demand is increasing for sustainable products. Um, we actually produce plastic-free, compostable-free products. Um, mm-hmm. So we're seeing uh, demands across the board. What kind of companies are you dealing with, can you say? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in the BC area, we uh, have some larger food service chains, such as uh, White Spots, Triple Lows, and then uh, on the smaller side, some individual ones. So we're actually seeing really uh, everyone has to switch. So from your largest chains that uh, you see everywhere to the smallest local individual mom-and-pop coffee shops. So it's really uh, a wide diverse spread of uh, businesses. What advice would you want to give to those companies that may not know this is coming or perhaps haven't yet prepared? What kind of advice would you want to give to them in regards to the December deadline? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of confusion is what we're seeing out there. Um, As you mentioned, there's a federal ban coming into place and then there's provincial bans on their own. So uh, across the board, we're seeing confusion where businesses don't really know what types of products they're allowed to use, what they are allowed to use. So my advice is to educate yourself. Um, We're actually working on a a guide, kind of an all-in-one guide to Uh federal, provincial laws that we'll be putting out to help people navigate this. But my my advice is to make sure you choose a product that is long-term because Canada has put in place uh, a zero plastic, a zero waste uh, goal by 2030. And so... The laws are only going to keep getting stricter. So if you switch to something that you think is still kind of plastic, it's probably going to get banned fairly soon. Mm -hmm. Uh, In regards to uh, this particular uh, 
uh, sort of sector of the economy. Uh, walk me through your company a little bit. Uh, how did it start and, and, and uh, in regards to just sort of the demand that you're already seeing? Yeah, so we started in 2018, mm-hmm. right when paper straws were first starting to pop up. And it was actually due to a bad experience with paper straws, um, as everyone has definitely experienced by now. My brother called me. He had a, a milkshake, and the straw ruined his milkshake. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've always been pretty eco-conscious, so he called me, and he was like, we, we should make something better. So we spent about a year redeveloping the paper straws that we sell. They don't get soggy. They don't taste like paper. They don't fall apart. Um, from there, we thought, what's next? And that was the cup and the lid. So we spent about three and a half years developing our cup and lid. And the lid is actually built into the cup. So it's probably something you've never seen before. It's almost like a takeout container. Mm -hmm. And the entire cup is plastic free. So no plastic coating. Most paper cups, most people don't know is that they're actually coated in plastic. So the wax coating uh, is plastic. And ours is entirely plastic free and one skew, which is very important to businesses because now they get to eliminate the lid completely. So you get to save half the space, half the money on freight, and also have a positive environmental impact. Mm-hmm. Uh- in regards to these regulations, federal and provincial and, and municipal uh, as well, in your mind, is Canada headed in the right direction in regards to these bylaws and laws? Uh, some would argue, and you hear this a lot, that look, we're a small jurisdiction in the grand scheme of things, 40 million people. We're not going to have the impact that, let's say, a China would or an India or the United States or or um, or the EU, that really, at the end of the day, Canada's a bit player here. Uh, do you think this is still the right way to go in your mind? I do. And the reason being, while population-wise, in in terms of the world, it might be a a small impact, but as you said, Canada is kind of at the front and setting a precedent for the rest of the world. There's still a majority of countries out there that don't have any federal bans in place. And I think by Canada doing this on a federal level, Mm -hmm. uh, it's really setting a a precedent for the, the right direction for the world to go in. So... Um, while, while it might seem difficult on the individual level, definitely as a whole, it's making the right impact. Now, uh, you know, fast food uh, restaurants, coffee shops, you know, they have their set costs in regards to uh, what a, a straw costs, what a cup costs, what a, cont- uh, a lid costs. This transition to paper products, uh, is this transition more expensive? Generally, can you bring your costs down to what I'm going to assume was, you know, pretty low cost for, for, for traditional cups and lids and straws? Yeah, so typically going sustainable, eco-friendly does have a cost associated with it. Mm-hmm. But at our company, at Sophie, we focus on solutions that make it as easy as possible for our customers to be able to switch. And that also includes cost. So as I mentioned with our cup that has the built-in lid, mm-hmm. you're eliminating now an entire SKU category. You're saving on freight. Um, so for us, it's really important for us to make it as easy as possible for people to switch while also providing uh, the same quality that you would get from a plastic straw or a paper cup. Um, so, yeah, we're trying to do our best uh, to help people become more sustainable. Uh, and uh, are businesses out there aware of this? I mean, I know where you and I are talking about this. We've covered this in the past. We're talking about it now. Do most businesses understand that this is coming down pretty quick? We're seeing a mix. I think people 
now that summer's over, like I said, we're getting closer to the band. I think yep. people are starting to wake up, but I, I do think it is going to sneak up on a lot of people uh, that haven't really been keeping up with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I, like I said, I would just advise people to get educated on it. We are going to be putting out a guide on our website on sophieproducts.com, uh, and you can sign up and get it, and it'll be an all-inclusive guide. Excellent. Brandon, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate the conversation. Yeah, thank you, too. Yeah, thanks for having me. We were speaking to Mario Canseco from the polling firm Research Co. They put out a new poll today. Uh, they conducted an online survey, of, which is representative of the provincial sample among decided voters. Uh, 48% uh, said that they would uh, vote BCNDP if an election were held today. That's up to two points since the last poll they conducted in May. Now, here's the surprising part. BC United is at 20% support. That's down 13 points. And the Conservative Party of BC is at 19%, so one point below BC United, and they're up 15 points since the last poll in May, and the Green Party is in fourth place with 12% support. Uh, Joining us now to talk a little bit about today's poll and past polls, and particularly what number two and number three look like, is um, Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Good afternoon, Richard. Ooh, Jazz, this is quite the poll. <laughs> <laughs> I know it is quite the poll. And uh, for political junkies like us, we kind of look at this and go, well, either this is a one-off, there's some challenges that over the BC United, or maybe this is a tectonic shift in BC politics. I don't know. What do you uh, take from all this today? Based on the conversations I'm having with people, this is not a one-off. I'm told that the internal polls that parties are doing show similar things to this, and we should expect to see a bunch of polls over the next few weeks. Uh, Mid-October will be a year out from the scheduled 2024 provincial election, Mm -hmm. uh, and that's often a time where pollsters like to go out uh, and ask British Columbians how they are feeling to get a sense of what this looks like. And we know the old adage, Jazz, the only poll that matters is the one on election day. But these types of polls give us a sense of how people are feeling right now. And the fact that the Conservative Party of BC is surging shows that on the right wing of the political spectrum, there are voters that are looking for a place to call home. Uh, And it also shows there is likely a lot of brand confusion here. The people do not know what BC United is as we see their popularity plummet. We saw them struggle in the by-election here on Vancouver Island in Langford, Wanda Fuca. All of that is not a good sign for Kevin Falcon. The other thing in this poll that is a really, really bad sign uh, is when voters are asked whether they would consider casting a ballot for certain parties, Mm -hmm. the NDP is way up in front at 51%. The Conservatives are second at 37%. The Greens are third at 35%. And BC United is sitting at fourth at 32%. So that's not decided voters. That's just whether people are considering the option of BC United. If you're Kevin Falcon looking at all this, that is not a good sign at all. And a lot of work has to be done. You'll be hearing a lot on CKNW, my guess is over the next year, about what BC United is. The former BC Liberals need to really launch that rebrand. Uh, but 
it's obviously not resonating with voters quite yet. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, you know, I keep hearing about this campaign, potentially they may be running on, on a variety of radio stations and TV uh, stations across this province. Uh, you know, for that to happen in a cluttered media environment, first of all, you need to spend a lot of dollars, number one. Number two, you have to have time to sustain it, not over just six months or a year, but two years and three years. And as you said, the election is next October. Uh, is there a runway for them to to actually have make an impact in the sort of consciousness of BC voters and say, it's us, we're the old BC Liberals, our traditional supporters come our way, or they just run out of runway? We've never seen anything like this in British Columbia. Well, we've had seismic shifts at a provincial level. They have happened in elections. Like you look back to 1991 and the implosion of the Social Credit Party, that was the Social Credit Party imploding, the BC Liberals doing better than expected, and the NDP forming government. And over time, the BC Liberals became home for these free enterprise coalition voters. This is a forced name change. The BC Liberals, in essence, told the electorate, oh, we're changing to BC United. At the same time, the Conservative Party said, not so fast. You know, we are going to speak to the concerns that conservatives are feeling. And of course, John Rustad, the party's leader, is riding the coattails of Pierre Polyev and the federal conservatives. But he's riding them for now effectively, at least based on this polling. And there will be some shifting. The conservatives have historically polled much better than they've done in elections. Mm -hmm. But this time feels different. You know, I don't think you could read this poll and say, oh, look, the conservatives are challenging to be official opposition. It's going to take time to get there. Mm -hmm. But you do need to look at this poll and say there are voters out there who feel disenfranchised, who feel they don't have a political home. And as you mentioned, that's, uh, you know, the media broke it up in the way that it is. It's hard to get people to understand these new political brands. People know what conservative means. They don't know what BC United means. And they may by election time. But by then it may be too late and people may say, I like conservative ideals. I'm going to vote for the conservatives, even though that may not be the traditional free enterprise party in this province. And I would suspect as the months go on, there'll be much more pointed questions directed at John Rustad, the BC conservative leader. You know, here's a guy who was in cabinet in 2016, supported Soji as a cabinet, now says he wants to to, to ban it and bring in uh, anti-bullying legislation instead. He was in cabinet when they approved, or sorry, in caucus. Uh, when they approve the carbon tax. Now he says he wants to get rid of it or he has concerns over it. So, you know, you can't have it both ways. So I would see more pointed questions directed at him as well. Uh, and I think that'll be part of the issue. Um, in regards to that bounce that you said, uh, it's not like Mr. Rustad, I don't think at this point, is resonating in Metro Vancouver. Where I mean, my, my issue here is that if Mr. Falcon is fighting to keep those conservative voters, or at least to make sure Mr. Rustad doesn't gain in regards to those conservative voters, who's spending all that time going after the uh, the federal liberal part of that coalition? Or is that just sort of lost? And that's part of it. I understand is you can't just be fighting Mr. Rustad on one side for the conservative vote. You still got to worry about that centrist Metro Vancouver voter who isn't a conservative as well. You got to attract some of those. Yeah, and those voters are frustrated clearly in some regards with issues like cost of living, concern about housing, concern about public safety, our health care system. Uh, but they have felt comfortable, in essence, with the way the NDP have gone about doing things. Clearly, this poll shows that David Eby has confidence of those voters. Kevin Falcon is courting those voters, but his numbers on a personal level are low, and they have been pre-name change and post-name change. 
there's still a sentiment around the previous BC Liberal government dating back to Christy Clark, and Kevin Falcon is so intrinsically linked to Gordon Campbell and those Liberal days transitioning into Christy Clark when we started to see the unaffordability crisis, the challenges with public transit, the challenges getting childcare, and Kevin Falcon's favorability numbers reflect that frustration. Where the Conservatives can make a big difference, and and again, it's going to be hard for them to win a lot of seats, but every vote they get largely takes away from BC United, and that means we'll have vote splitting on the right, and it will make it easier for the BC NDP to win seats in Metro Vancouver, out to the edges of Langley and Abbotsford and Chilliwack, all through Metro Vancouver, and all of that makes it much easier for David Eby uh, to win re-election. The surge the Conservatives are feeling, yes, not Metro Vancouver specific, but look in the Fraser Valley. Mm -hmm. They're now sitting second based on this poll. 26% of voters in the Fraser Valley say they'll vote Conservatives. The NDP leading in every major region, and the NDP is even leading in northern BC, which is uh, crazy to me, uh, with the Conservatives uh, sitting second at 23%. So I don't know how this boils down to reality, uh, but there's a lot in here, obviously, to unpack that would profoundly uh, shift our electoral map, have the NDP pick up seats they couldn't dream of picking up a few years ago, including uh, potentially in Kamloops and Kelowna and so many other areas, while potentially leading to you know a real implosion of the BC United support. Again, we're a year out, but all these things based on this poll and others we've seen seem now to be the, in the realm of possibility. May we live in interesting times, and clearly we do. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> we'll have lots of coverage leading up to that election, Jazz, I promise. <laughs> there you go. That is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.